If you have your Bibles with you, open to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. As we are taking a break from our journey through Exodus. Normally our breaks in a series like Exodus would be a break to clarify something that we are dealing with in that particular text. Um, this, this break was, was granted to me as an opportunity um, to offer some last words on, my, uh, on the occasion of my, my last sermon here as an elder at GFBC. And I can think of nothing more fitting um, than to do so from the book of Second Timothy, as that is, in essence, what Paul is doing um, with Timothy, offering last words, what he hopes are not last words, um, but what he is aware may indeed be last words. I offer these as way of encouragement and also as a means of thanksgiving um, for the more than nine years that uh, God has given me the privilege of, of, um, of ministering here. Um, that our text today is really concentrated in a portion of a verse, but we'll look at large segments of this letter in order to put this portion of a verse into context. Uh, chapter 1 and verse 8 there's a therefore clause. Paul writes, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God of God. If I were to characterize what this nine plus years of ministry has been, and if I was to characterize what, what I believe the future of the ministry here would hold, it would be that last phrase in verse 8. It would be share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Not in the sense that everything has been suffering, all suffering all the time. Absolutely not. But the fact of the matter is, when there is a commitment to the gospel, when we are about a work that is about the gospel, when we are in the midst of a culture that is antagonistic toward the gospel, then our work will be characterized by a sense of suffering, even on our joyful days. We are suffering for the gospel, and we are suffering by the power of God, which is the only way that we can achieve said suffering. The occasion of this letter is very informative. Paul is in prison in Rome again. Um, he knows that uh, he is not likely to see freedom, to see the light of day again. 
Um, we know this from chapter 4. He makes that clear. Um, turn with me to chapter 4 and look at verse 6. Paul writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul understands that he is likely to be martyred and to be martyred very shortly. Which is why you find in the next verse, do your best to come to me soon. He knows he will not be able to go to Timothy. He says to young Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. Paul's ministry is coming to an end as his life is coming to an end. And as he contemplates the end of his ministry and the end of his life, he takes pen, paper, and his amanuenses and dictates a letter to a young man that means the world to him. If you want to get a glimpse at the relationship between these two, there are just a couple of passages that are necessary. Go to the first paragraph after the introduction. And look at the introduction first. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, to Timothy, my beloved child. Interesting. Timothy is not related to Paul. Paul is not Timothy's biological father. And yet the apostle refers to him as my beloved child child. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at the next paragraph. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Note the intimacy in this relationship. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Isn't that an ironic statement? As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I might be filled with joy. Remember what I said earlier about the suffering for the gospel doesn't necessarily mean that there is no joy and there is no goodness. There are no good days or no happy days in the ministry of the gospel. But it is this suffering that characterizes what we do as we minister the gospel. So he says to Timothy, I, I remember you. He doesn't say, I remember those days of laughter and play and I remember this and I can't wait to see you as I think about those days. He says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. You can almost hear the psalmist, can't you? Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Isn't it interesting that he refers to this young man as my child? And then, just a few lines later, 
we're introduced to the fact that Timothy at least doesn't have a father in his spiritual lineage and may have been raised without a father at all. So here's the Apostle Paul who takes under his wing a young pastor, a young pastor who has sincere faith dwelling in him, this faith that was passed along to him by his mother and by his grandmother. And either his father was not a believer and did not play a significant role in the passing on of this faith, or his father was absent from his life completely. In either case, Paul refers to him as my child, my son. He has stepped into that role for whatever reason. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Why is this significant? It's significant because of the nature of the letter. It's significant because Paul knows that he's about to die, but he also knows why he's about to die. He's about to die for proclaiming the gospel. And what is the theme of 2 Timothy? There's a twofold theme in 2 Timothy, and it runs throughout the entire letter. We've looked at it before, but it bears looking at it again. In every chapter, there are two things that appear. In every chapter, Paul reminds young Timothy to preserve and proclaim the gospel. In every chapter. Look with me in chapter 1. And look at verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Preserve the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Look in chapter 2. Chapter 2, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Look at chapter 3. Verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then in chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. In every chapter, there is a reminder to preserve the gospel and proclaim the gospel. But why? Why is that so important? It's so important because Paul is about to die. It's so important because one by one, the apostles are losing their lives. 
One by one, the apostles are being martyred. And these individuals who have followed the Lord Jesus Christ, these individuals who have been entrusted with the gospel message are spreading it as far and as wide as they possibly can. And even in their lifetime, this gospel is being perverted. I always find it interesting when people say, we just need to get back to being like the first century church. Really? Do you mean like Corinth? Corinth was a first century church. And it was messed up. It was as messed up as any church you've ever known. Do you mean like the churches to which Jesus refers in those first two chapters? Those seven churches in Asia Minor referred to in Revelation? Do you mean we need to be a first century church like those churches? Because those were first century churches that were messed up. All but a couple of exceptions. Being a first century church did not guard these churches from error and great heresy. And even as early as the first century, the church was dealing with heresy. Turn with me to the right and look at Jude, right before Revelation. And look at Jude, verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Peter says it in his epistle that there are dogs who have crept into the church. Paul addresses it when he addresses the church at Corinth. We find it in the pastoral epistles over and over and over again. There is a warning against false teachers. John, in his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he is dealing with the Gnostic heresy, which is already prevalent in the church. So immediately, before the death of the apostles, there are those individuals who are coming in and perverting the gospel. So the fear of the apostles was this. And remember, there is no New Testament yet. This is why the apostles are writing. They're writing because they're seeing one another being martyred. One after another, after another, after another. And they're seeing the gospel being perverted. They're having to stand up and confront heresy over and over again. Oftentimes the same heresies in place after place after place. Judaizing controversy, which was dealt with in Acts chapter 15. The Judaizers who believed that you had to be circumcised, you had to become a Jew before you could become a Christian. And so Paul is dealing with this in Galatians. So as he comes toward the end of his life, what is he worried about? He is worried about the fact that the gospel is within one generation of being completely lost. And so he reminds young Timothy in every chapter of this letter, preserve and proclaim the gospel. Preserve and proclaim the gospel. 
And I say, as I leave GFBC, preserve and proclaim the gospel. It is our only hope. And this church is not beyond losing it. No church is beyond losing it. No church is beyond heretics coming in and having their way should the church's guard be let down. No church is beyond easing off into making things that are secondary, primary, thus perverting the gospel. No church is beyond this danger. Especially because of the second theme in Timothy. The first theme is preserve and proclaim the gospel. What's the second theme? Something you find in every chapter. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Chapter 2, verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, beginning verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Iconium, at Antioch, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. By the way, don't ask that question anymore. Don't ask that question anymore. We ask that question all the time, don't we? Why is it, why does it seem like the people who pervert the gospel advance? Why does it, why are there all these churches out there who are unfaithful to Christ, unfaithful to the gospel, and they have thousands upon thousands in attendance, and they build multi-million dollar buildings, and they're all over the television perverting the gospel. Why? 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 Because the Bible is true. That's why. I mean, are you really asking that question? God says in his word, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, and you look at evil men and imposters proceeding from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, and ask, I don't understand why. If you don't understand why, you don't believe the Bible. Amen, somebody. This is exactly what the Bible teaches, and it's precisely what we see. Now, here's what I did not say. I did not say that all big churches are deceptive and evil. Amen. The first church in the book of Acts was thousands upon thousands upon thousands. They had to do something to figure out how to deal with the thousands upon thousands. They were getting them five and 10,000 at a time. So be very careful before you condemn the idea of being big just for the sake of condemning being big. Because the moment you do that, you condemn the first church you find in Acts. Amen? Look in chapter 4, verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So in every chapter, we see preserve and proclaim the gospel. And in every chapter, we see endure the suffering that will follow inevitably as a result of preserving and proclaiming the gospel. 
Here's the amazing thing. Paul is writing to young Timothy, and essentially, here's what he's saying. They're about to kill me for preaching the gospel, and when they do, I want you to make sure that you preach the gospel. I'm about to lose my life for doing what I'm calling you to do. Why? Because the gospel is that important. That's why. That's why. So how do you do it? Now we get back to verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Why would you be ashamed of either of those things? It's easy to be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord because the testimony is what causes the persecution. It's easy to be ashamed of Paul because the testimony is associated with him. So don't be ashamed of the testimony. Go to chapter 4, and this is very important in the not being ashamed of the testimony. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why is it important to charge him? And by the way, this is a solemn charge. He could have just started off chapter 4, preach the word, but he doesn't. Note the formality. He says several times, my child, my son, my child, and yet here he gets formal. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and by his appearing and by his kingdom. Sounds like he's standing up in a courtroom. Or or he's reading off a list. You know, there's there's a, a dignitary who is about to stand up, you know. I present to you... Lord of all the high seas, king of all the... You're right. This is a formal announcement. This is a formal charge. In essence, he's saying, I'm not speaking to you as your father in the ministry right now. I'm speaking to you as Paul the apostle, and I'm charging you. What is it that is so important that it requires this kind of charge? preach the word. Right after he explains what the word is, that it is breathed out by God, it's God's word, right? And it's completely sufficient. It's authoritative and it's sufficient. But why does he have to charge him? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. That's why. That's why. If you don't have a solemn charge and you're ashamed of the testimony and ashamed of the apostle, then what happens is this. You stand up and you preach faithfully and People don't respond. And someone else stands up and they compromise just a little bit. They stand up and they say, we don't preach on sin here because people already know that they're sinners. We want to preach a more positive message. And people flock to hear 
the more positive message that doesn't harp on sin. And suddenly here you are with your message that does harp on sin. If you're ashamed of the testimony about our Lord and ashamed of his apostle, then you may back away from that as well. You're preaching on our need for the gospel and for transformation and somebody else stands up and they're preaching pop psychology from the pulpit. You're giving the gospel and they're giving something that sounds more akin to a 12 steps program. And people desiring self-help because our flesh wants nothing more than self-help. I want to justify myself. What I desperately want you to do is I want you to give me five rules for a happy life so that when I'm happier next week, I can say it's because I kept the five rules. Don't you dare give me that gospel stuff because if it's that gospel stuff and I'm merely clinging to Christ, all of a sudden Christ is exalted and not me. So we run to the place that will feed our flesh. And all of a sudden, here we are. What's the temptation? The temptation is to not preach the word, but to wander off where the people are in myths. Unless there's a solemn charge and you're not ashamed. The word of faith teaching, which is another gospel, which is no gospel at all. We're tempted to run off into that because people flock to it. People want it. People accumulate teachers that suit their own desires. And again, this is not to say that we don't want God to or believe God can grow his church on faithful proclamation of the gospel. He does, he can, and he has. But notice what Paul says. He says, be ready in season and out of season. In the Greek, it's eukairos, akairos. There's two types of time in the Greek. There's, there's, there's chronological time, right? And then there's opportunity time. He's not talking about chronos here, but kairos, chronological, right? We're not talking about that. But we're talking about opportunity times, Good season, not so good season. There have been seasons in history where if you wanted to grow a church, you had to preach the gospel and you had to preach it hard because that's what people were looking for. There was a time in history when thousands of people would gather together in a field all day long to listen to George Whitfield preach hard, long sermons. I mean, just beat people half to death for a long time. And some of the most famous people of his day would go and would listen to him. And if you wanted to be a preacher of any reputation, you had to preach like that. That's you, Kairos. Amen? Where the gospel is so present and so prevalent that people fall over themselves to preach the gospel faithfully. Even those who are just there to gather a crowd and be liked by men have to preach the gospel in order to do so. And then there are those seasons like the one we've been in in this culture for a long time where the preaching of the gospel is out of fashion. 
It's interesting. Things are turning, and there's more conversation about the gospel now, and there's more desire to hear the gospel now, and I praise God for that. I don't care why people preach the gospel. Amen? As long as they preach the gospel. I don't care why. A guy's out there, and he's got bad motives, and he just wants to draw a crowd of people, and he wants to draw them to himself, and he sees that people are being drawn to the gospel, and so he's picking up on the gospel, and he sees that people are drawn to the doctrines of grace, so he's picking up on the doctrines of grace. Am I going to sit there and tell him to stop preaching those things because the motives of his heart may not be pure? No. Keep preaching them, because I don't know anything that will take care of the motives of your heart better than that stuff, (laughs) number one. Amen? But secondly, people need to hear that. I don't care why you're preaching that. It's our only hope. It's our only hope. It's like standing in the midst of, a, of an area that's been devastated by an earthquake or devastated by a hurricane and deciding whether or not you'll take a cool drink of water for someone because you wonder about whether or not their motives are pure. If people are thirsty and somebody's handing out water, you drink the water. So it's good to see things turning in that direction, but we are still in a season in our culture where what people want is entertainment and the feeding of the flesh. And there are people who will pass this church by because they don't get that here. There are people who will not stay here because they want their liver quiver. And and, and what we're doing doesn't provide it for them here. We are about doing things well and doing things with excellence. And I pray that we continue to be about doing things well and doing things with excellence. But the idea of tickling people's ears, may it never be. How do we avoid that? By not being ashamed of the testimony of Christ, or, or of the apostles. And by holding on to this solemn charge, second half there of verse 8, but instead of that, what do you do? Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. All of those things are important. First, share in suffering. Praise God for this. You know, one of the tendencies when we suffer, one of the tendencies when we suffer is to automatically go into Elijah, woe is me mode. When we are called upon to endure, when we are called upon to suffer, one of the automatic tendencies is to get to that place where Elijah was, where we believe we're the only prophet who hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. And it's not true. It's never been true. God always has a faithful remnant. Amen? He has always had a faithful remnant. He will always have a faithful remnant. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands who have not bowed the the knee to the culture. It may look like and seem like everybody out there has fallen away. It may look like and seem like everybody out there has just capitulated. It's not true. It's not true. Just because some of the highest profile ministries that you see and know about 
are ministries that do not, in my estimation, qualify as churches. That does not mean that somehow the church has failed. Jesus meant what he said when he said he'll build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He meant what he said. The church is faithful. The church is pure. The church is holding strong and firmly to the gospel. But because that's happening in communities all over the place that are 50, 100, 150, 200, it may look like and seem like it's not happening. Because the gospel is being preached faithfully by guys who are doing it in the corners of the world that you're not aware of and are not falling over themselves to get on television or even on sermon audio, it may seem like there's just not many out there doing it, but there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands who are doing this. Paul says to Timothy, share in suffering. In other words, I'm not asking you to do something that I'm refusing to do myself. You are not alone in this. That's one of the things that the devil would love to convince you of as you walk in faithfulness. Your companions may be few at times, but they are there. Amen? They are there. Share in suffering. Secondly, for the gospel. Share in suffering for the gospel. This was a hard lesson for me to learn. Now, I want to be careful with how I, 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 I say this, but early on in the ministry, I would have believed that it was important to do this out of a passion for the people. And we hear that often. You know, I want to plant a church in this area because I have a heart for these people. I want to plant a church in the city because I have a heart for the city. I want to plant a church in the suburbs because I have a heart for the suburbs. I want to plant a church in the rural community because I have a heart for rural people. I want to plant a church among the cowboys because I have a heart for the cowboy. I want to plant a church among this people group because I have a heart for this people group. Listen, if we do what we do because of our heart for people, we won't do it long. We must do what we do because of a heart for the gospel. Because of a heart for the gospel. That's why we do what we do. There are a couple of reasons for that. The first reason is this. We don't know whom God will call by the proclamation of the gospel. We don't know whom God will call by the proclamation of the gospel. God has brought people into this church over the last, you know, six months to a year from what, 10, 12 different nations? If we were just here because we have a heart for the people in this neighborhood, what, 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 what do we say about the people from all over the world that God has brought here to this church? Do we complain? Do, Lord, 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 I, we really, listen, I, I just want you to hear me, my heart in this prayer. I thank you 
you know, for, for, for sending, you know, the, the, the French guy and, you know, the, 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 the Indian couple. And I thank you for sending, you know, people from Mexico and China and Germany and, you know, and Nigeria and all that. That's real cool. But if you remember, my heart is for Do you hear me? Our passion is for the gospel. And for whomever Christ brings as a result of the proclamation of the gospel. There's a second reason for this. And the second reason for this, and this, this was a hard lesson to learn over time. If you have a heart, if you do this for the people, and this is for the elders who remain and for the rest who remain here at GFBC. If you're here at GFBC and you're giving yourself to this church because of the people, you won't stay. Why? Because here is the hard truth. Your greatest pain will come from the people. Amen, somebody. The people who will hurt you the most are the people who are closest to you because the things that they do matter to you the most. And if our attitude is, well, we're here for the people and we're here for what we get from the people and how the people make us feel then as soon as the people don't make you feel like that anymore, you're out the door. But if you're here for the gospel, and if your desire is to see the gospel formed in people, then the hardship is not enough to turn you away from the people. Look at what Paul says. Chapter 1, verse 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often uh, refreshed me and was not ashamed of me. But when we arrived at Rome, in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Turn with me to the right and look at verse chapter 4. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. That one's ironic because one of the greatest fallings out he had was with Mark. So Mark used to be a source of pain, but now he wants him because he's useful. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak I left with you. And Carpus, uh, I, I left, uh, that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books and also the parchments. Alexander, the coppersmith, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Folks, if Paul is in this for the people, he's done. If he's in this for the people, 
He's done. It's over. If that's why he does it. We hurt one another because we're so close to one another and because we let each other in. And we also have a tendency sometimes to not let people get close anymore after we've experienced that hurt so that we can protect ourselves. Listen to me. If you protect yourself from the hurt that fellow Christians can do to you, you are also protecting yourself from the blessing that fellow Christians can be to you. If we do this for the sake of the gospel, then we do it in spite of the hurt. We do it through the hurt. Because it's for the gospel. Some of the greatest, most memorable, most cherished moments in my life have happened over the last nine plus years since starting GFBC because of the tremendous blessing of people here and some of the greatest pain I've ever experienced in my entire existence has been over the last nine plus years from people right here at GFBC. If my desire turns to people, there is no stability. But if the desire is for the gospel, then even when great harm, hurt, and difficulty comes, what's the hope? The hope is that the gospel would be formed in that individual. How do you reach out and minister after you've been hurt by someone? By clinging to the gospel and the hope that the gospel would be formed in them. And by remembering that it's that same gospel that allows God to forgive you again and again and again and again. The next time some Christian lets you down, remember who you are before Christ who died for you and then ask yourself this question. Have you given to that Christian who hurt you a fraction of what Christ has given for you? And if not, then how dare you give up on them? How dare you walk away from them? How dare you throw up your hands and say, you're not going to get close enough to hurt me again. How dare you? We suffer for the sake of the gospel. And when it's for the sake of the gospel, we suffer and we'll suffer again and again and again as it's necessary. How? By the power of God. 
That's the only way. By the power of God. How can we endure what we're called to endure? Solely by the power of God. How can we overcome the things that we're called to overcome? Solely by the power of God. That's it, saints. That's the only way. You know what I love about this? Here's what I love about this. What I love about this is when we suffer, you know what my automatic tendency is? My automatic tendency when hurt and suffering and difficulty comes to me is is to say this. I need the power of God present in my life right now so that the power of God can take the suffering away. Or I was not walking in the power of God because if I was walking in the power of God, then I wouldn't have experienced the difficulty and the hurt and the suffering. Paul says, suffer for the gospel by the power of God. In other words, your suffering didn't come to you because God, God's power was present, wasn't present. God's always present. We endure the suffering for the cause of the gospel by God's power. This is why, listen, how many times have you said, it's amazing to me, you know, you walk with people in pastoral ministry long enough, and here's a story that you'll hear, and I'm looking at some of them right now, I won't call you out, but people who've said, I've said to myself, when I've watched other people get a cancer diagnosis, I don't think I could survive that. And yet here I am surviving that. I've watched other people deal with the death of a loved one and said to myself, I don't think I could survive that. And yet here I am surviving that. I've watched other people deal with the death of a child. And I said, oh no, that one, I know I couldn't survive that one. And yet here I am surviving that one. I've watched other people deal with adultery. I've watched other people deal with abandonment. I've watched other people deal with wayward children. I've watched other people deal with sickness. I've watched other people deal with whatever. And I said to myself, I don't think I could survive that. And yet here I am by the power of God, surviving the very thing I thought I could never survive. Do you know why? Because it's God, people. It's God. More difficult days will come to GFBC. When they do, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Endure suffering for the sake of the gospel by the power of God. There will be more funerals. When they come, endure suffering for the sake of the gospel by the power of God. There will be more abandonments. When they come, endure suffering for the sake of the gospel, by the power of God, there will be more slander. When it comes, endure suffering for the sake of the gospel, by the power of God, there will be massive disappointments and discouragements when they come, 
endure suffering for the sake of the gospel by the power of God. Why? Because we are not living in hope of utopia. Our hope is not that we'll come to a place where people and circumstances won't hurt us anymore. That does not exist this side of glory. It's not real. What is our hope? Our hope is that Christ might be formed in us and that Christ might have the fullness of the reward for which he died. If that's the case, we can endure, we will endure, we must endure everything for the sake of the gospel by the power of God. For the one who endured the cross is the one who strengthens us to endure whatever it is that we're called to endure. And because the power that raised him from the dead is the power that resides in us, we know that we have abiding in us everything we need and more to endure whatever it is that we're called to endure. Because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And so we stand. And so we preach, so we proclaim, so we preserve, so we endure, so we overcome for the sake of the gospel, by the power of God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, how we rejoice in you. How we rejoice in your truth. How we rejoice in your grace. How we rejoice in your mercy. How we rejoice in your kindness. How we rejoice in your salvation. Grant by your grace that we might continue to rejoice even in the midst of dark days. Father, we thank you for your many kindnesses toward us, for your mercies that are new every morning. We rejoice in everything that you have done, are doing, and shall continue to do in and with and through this body of believers. Grant by your grace that the candlestick of GFBC might burn brightly until the Lord comes.
This we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.